This has been a horrible week. Perhaps you, like I, did have some glorious moments within it. But truly, the terror that was in Charlottesville just a week ago, and then again in Spain, and then that which was anticipated in Durham, North Carolina, it was a horrible week. My sister lives outside of Durham, North Carolina, and her office is located there in the city of Durham. And when word broke that there was going to be a rally in the heart of that city, the HR department sent out word to the staff of the organization for which she works to alert them to what was possibly going to happen. My sister was at home, working from home, and she still, though, got the alert from HR and sent it on to us in a family text that we always have going. She said that there was an anticipation of the KKK showing up in the downtown Durham. And she texted in her message, what is going on here? That is the question that we have. What is going on here? And we have a desire to answer it because that's so often how we find our guidance for how to solve the problem. What is going on here? It's the fundamental first question. And once we get our head wrapped around it, then we say, okay, now this is what we need to do. And we outline the steps and we carry them out. But what if you don't know what's going on? I was part of a clergy group, I am part of several clergy groups actually, but the one that I want to tell you about took place at the end of last year, or maybe it was the start of this year, I really don't know. But the tensions were high, and we clergy were discussing among one another what to do with the fact that the tensions were high, that people felt uncertain and afraid, and that that brought out things that none of us want to be known for behaviors that don't reflect what we're called to do and be in Christ. And we were discussing with one another what to do in our roles of leadership. And one person said, you know, I think we need to just wait and it'll settle down and then we can do something. And I said, it's already been over a year and it hasn't settled down. I don't know when it's going to. The shooting at the, the club Pulse in Orlando, that anniversary has already passed. The terror that happened at the AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, was more than two years ago. What is going on here? We as Christian people are trying to figure out how do we respond in this? We're waiting for it to settle down, to pass over, but you know what? It's not. Because evil has a way of not just moving on along. It finds some place on which to feed, like some parasite. It needs a host. People's pain, people's fear, people's uncertainty are wonderful feeders for evil. And so we are in a position of trying to decide how do we act and live in what looks like it's going to be a while. 
How do we act in this world so that maybe a while won't be as long as it could possibly be? How much worse does it have to get before we decide to in insert ourselves into the equation? An organization that I support is called the Southern Poverty Law Center. It's based in Montgomery, Alabama, and for many decades now has been fighting hate around our country. They have some very clear guidelines for keeping up with hate crimes and for defining them so that they can be measured accurately. They have systems of reporting and they have actions that they carry out, justice that help address places where evil wants to take root. And I got their publication this week and the director of the center said something that I thought really rang true. He said, hate has to be taught. He said, but as people, we are innately inclined to tribalism. This rings true for me. Maybe it rings true for you too. We gravitate toward those who are like us. We recognize ourselves in relationship to them. And we want to be recognized and affirmed. We want a place of belonging. And so it's easy to become insular, only taking care of our own. I think of all the times that people highlight how it is that we take care of our own, our own family, our own community. And that's a glorious thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's, it's not remarkable. Because you know what? We are inclined to that. It's our natural way. Paul is taking up this very matter in his letter to the Romans. Paul wrote to the church in Rome some 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember, Paul never met Jesus. But he had an experience that changed his life, and he went around the world, as far as the world was to him, to share that news. So here he is writing to the church in Rome. This is around 60 or 70. Now, the church is not an institution at that time. There's no pope, there's no bishops or priests or deacons. There was simply the practice of people wanting to follow the way, the way that Jesus made evident. They were figuring it out as they went along. There was definitely baptism already at that time, and there was definitely the Eucharist, which is why we hold those as the two primary sacraments, because they've been a part of these people getting together as followers of Jesus from the very beginning. So when Paul addresses the church in Rome, he's addressing a community of people who are trying their best to follow Jesus. And at that time, the Jews had been exiled from Rome. They had been sent out. And so the church was comprised of Gentiles, just by the nature of the fact that it was in Rome and the government had made a decision and exiled the Jewish people. So the Gentiles were starting to make sense of this and deciding that maybe they were God's new children, that God had, through the actions of the, the Roman rulership had shown some authority or divine intervention or something and they were making sense of this in their heads that maybe the Jewish people weren't God's people any longer. 
And Paul will have none of that. I see in this letter to the church in Rome another piece of evidence of our tribalism, of our inclination to only recognize that which is like us and to support that which is like us because really it makes the best sense, right? How easy we can fool ourselves. Paul is telling the church in Rome that God doesn't go back on God's promises. And when God chose the Hebrew people, God did it forever. And when God chooses you and me, God does it forever. And so now what does that mean? It means that we are one in Christ. We don't get to be outside of one another. We don't get to make the other an object. We are one in Christ, and it's in Christ that we find ourselves, and it's in Christ that we become the fullness of who we're created to be. And the amazing thing is that our fullness, each of us individually, only multiplies the possibility of fullness for others. And therein lies the difference. Therein lies the difference of following Jesus and not. And here's where I become evangelical about the Christian faith. When we give ourselves to following Christ, we are transformed more fully into who we are made to be, and that actually benefits all of creation. We discover that we are made one in Christ, and when we do that, we see all that Christ has made, and we are drawn closer into relationship with others. That's why these two greatest commandments make sense. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, because that's what happens. And I know of no other way that is so fruitful. Jesus was bringing this message from the moment he landed on earth so to speak. From the moment that God became incarnate, the message was being made known that God's love is for all people. We see it in the manger scene. We see it in the work Jesus does throughout his life. And we see it in the community that gathered around him after his resurrection. God's love is for all people. That might be hard for us to hear, but it is the message that Jesus brings to us. And so it's that which upset the Pharisees in our gospel lesson today. Did you catch that little note there from the disciples? Um, They're kind of bothered by what you said, they say to Jesus. Jesus says, look, if they can't recognize it, there's nothing I can do. If they're blind to what I have to show them, then they are. I can't do that part. But what I can do is show them the life that God invites us into in a relationship with the living God. That's all I can show them. And that is made known in what comes out of us, not what goes in. Now, the interesting thing in this gospel lesson is that Jesus then leaves this time of teaching and demonstration to God's chosen people and goes to another place. And as you see, he doesn't get a break. As he's walking along, someone's calling out to him, begging for mercy. It's a woman who's not of the Hebrew race, 
And it's growing annoying. The disciples say, will you at least just answer her, you know, like tell her to shut up or something. So Jesus stops and he says, I've come to the God's chosen people. That's my, that's my calling here. And he uses an analogy that is hurtful to hear. He says, you do not give the children's food to the dogs. And what does this woman do? I think of it as divine inspiration, her answer. Thus being one with God, I think that she's reminded Jesus of their interconnectedness. Using that illustration that he offered her, she reminds him of the interconnectedness. Yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Do you see the relationship between the created order? What she is drawing Jesus' attention to, and ours as well, is that no one's outside of this. People, dogs, whatever it might be, all of us are captured into the abundant love of God in Christ. And so, in reminding Jesus of this, he recognizes her faith. She is preaching to him and bringing to our attention the oneness that is in Christ. We are all united. If evil ever gains a foothold, it's because it objectifies. That's where it starts. In the hateful actions and speech of this week, that's been the starting point, is objectifying the other. It's as if it's a lovely day and someone comes up and taps the other person on the shoulder and says, hey, you know what, some people are in and some people are out, and I'm in and you're out. I just wanted you to know that. Objectifying the other. This is where I believe all sinfulness and all evil finds its place. And so we have to recognize that we fall prey to the same. I believe that following Jesus is a wonderful way of self-correction. You know, I believe that we fool ourselves if we think we can't fool ourselves. We fool ourselves if we think we won't fool ourselves. We fool ourselves all the time. We justify things. We legitimize things. We excuse things. And we find a way for it to make sense. But resting our lives in Christ allows our foolishness to continually be self-corrected. Christ corrects us again and again and again. And in the Christian faith, we find our lives corrected again and again and again, so that when we fool ourselves, we hear the words of Scripture come again to us that say, we have to talk. You're wrong. That's why I am evangelical about the Christian faith. Following Jesus, accepting him as your Savior, I mean, throwing yourself into what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't make sense. But it is the most trustworthy place to throw your life. In that relationship, goodness 
is bound to come. And when you deceive yourself, when I'm foolish, when I decide that somehow I am the other from them, it's God in Christ that corrects it again and again. Our salvation will only be known together. And so what do we do? I believe that as Christian people, we have to go back to that. We have to immerse ourselves in the ways of what it means to follow Christ so that we are ready whatever comes. Now, I hope that that doesn't mean war. So in my hope, I want to think about how do I help it be different, right? While people are trying to decide whether they should take up arms, I want to be at work about something different. And then if that should come, then we'll deal with it then. I can think of three different ways that this church can act as an agent of change in a positive way that reminds us of our unity, of God's people, of all of creation. But I can't embark on that alone. And so I invite you, after worship, if you want to start that dialogue with me, if you want to come to the table and look at these three ways, see what might be possible with one of them, or to maybe you have another something that you want to bring to that table, please talk to me. Evil's not going away. It hasn't ever gone away. But there have been times we've been able to not recognize it. There have been times that we've been able to not notice. And that was lovely. But it's no more. What do we do? We follow Jesus. We throw ourselves in to that relationship. We'll let our master teach us. Amen.